Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. So we're going to transition to our keynote feature for tonight. And I am excited. And I'll tell y'all why. There is rare that I've met anyone that reminded me so much of myself. And as I begin to read his book that's sitting there behind him, PTSD, Perseverance Through Severe Dysfunction, I was like, OMG. As my buddy Ren would describe, he says, Calvin, you've always had this thing that I call it evolve. You start out in one place from a caterpillar, and then you evolve into a butterfly, and then you don't just stay there, you evolve into something else. I am excited tonight to have a conversation with Reggie D. Ford. Because this brother has evolved time and time again. And Reggie, man, thank you for being here tonight. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Calvin. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, you're welcome. You're welcome. You know, the funny thing about getting ready for this show is, you know, you're also a Vanderbilt alum. And sometimes people are like, why you always like to spotlight Vanderbilt alums? I'm like, well, you know, that's the fam. But it did start there because we were not at Vanderbilt at the same time. Right. And I'm going to put this out there because I had to do this to understand as I'm reading your book, man, I'm having all of these experiences. Right. For example, in your book, you're talking about the hurricane of I think it was 1998 or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, tornado. That's what it was. It was tornado. And and I remember, you know, actually, I slept through the tornado, but I was on campus. Right. So and and it was weird because people like it was a horrible tornado. But as you mentioned these things in your book, I'm like, yeah, I remember that. Then you're like, oh, when I was in this organization, I'm like, oh, I went to school with that guy. So I don't know if I was feeling old or whatever, but I just need to put this out there. (laughs) This brother um, was born in, I think, 1991, right? Yep. So that makes you 30 years old. And one of the things is that I was surprised is how many people produce an autobiography at the age 30. Not a lot of people, but that's the background tonight. So let's go ahead and step into this because it's really not about the book. It's about your story. So the tonight's show entitled Breaking the Curse, Perseverance Through Severe Dysfunction as a Black Man in America, featuring Reggie D. Ford. So Reggie, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your origin story, your, you know, what you have, what you do for a living, and some of the things that you're proud of that you've accomplished. Yeah, I appreciate it again. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, to, to, to your point about Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt's in Nashville, and I grew up in Nashville. I'm born and, born and bred here, and this is hometown. So I always had a passion to make it to Vanderbilt and, and attend the school, and that's kind of what I set my focus on early on in life. But uh, coming from where I came from, I, it, it was it was almost unfathomable to even think 
that I was going to go to college. Neither of my parents graduated from high school, uh, had teen parents. My mom was 14 when she had me. My dad was 18. And um, it was that presented a lot of challenges, as you can imagine. And um, in my in my community, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a given. It wasn't a a, you know known thing that education was going to continue after high school. Sometimes after middle school, even. Uh, But that was something that my mom really focused on. My mom made sure that in the classroom, I was I was on top of my my game, and um, it helped me when I entered school and continued to go through everything that I went through in school which ultimately led to this opportunity to be at one of the most prestigious private schools here in Nashville called Montgomery Bell Academy. And you step on the campus of Montgomery Bell and it's like MBA is the nickname for it. And a lot of times it's an all boys school. So a lot of people call it mama's boy Academy, Uh, but you step on this campus and I don't care if you're black, white, you know, new money, some old money, right? But like, if you're not from this community, you just feel out of place. And so coming from, you know, the hood that I grew up in to stepping on this, you know, a few miles across town was a, a huge culture shock to say the least. But it was just the first, one of the first steps in um, opening so many doors for me and the continuation of my education path and my career. Um, but you know, was was fortunate enough to um, do well there. Played sports there. Was in the arts and everything else, and then got an opportunity to go to Vanderbilt University, where I walked on. I played football. Got tossed around a little bit. Tossed some other people around. It was fun. But uh, yeah, I, I did that. And then currently, I I started a, a, a wealth management company. And I think that that was uh, going back. I wealth wasn't a topic discussed in my family because we're trying to make ends meet, trying to see where our next meal is coming from. But um, for me, finance and understanding and taking care of money was something that was important to me because I saw the pitfalls. I saw the mistakes that so many people in my family had made. And, you know, going along with the theme of breaking the curse, I I knew that money, I, I still feel that money isn't everything. But um, if you can eliminate the burden that not having money brings, then that's one less thing in the words of my, my man, uh, Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. So I, uh, I, I run a wealth management firm called Rose Creek Wealth Management. And I actually, the name, I had a shirt, so I'm going to stand up a little bit so you can see that. The name comes from a poem by Tupac, uh, the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete. You know, through all the per- through all the adversity, through the ups and downs, uh, its tenacity helped it reach the sun. Right, you see a rose growing out of concrete. You think about the poor soil. You think about the little light. You think about the lack of water, but yet its tenacity helped it reach the sun. And when you see that rose that grew from a crack in the concrete, it's going to have blemishes. It's going to have flaws and imperfections. But we don't dwell on those imperfections when we know what it has to when it what it has to go through to get to where it is and that's just an epitome of my life and so I wanted to celebrate that and everything that I do and and I think perseverance through severe dysfunction is that same story so um you know taking a, a, a what could be perceived as a negative and turn it into a positive something that I think I've, I've always tried to do in my life awesome awesome man you know I mean I just get excited man because 
like you said, the rolls through the concrete, right? I knew I grew up small town Texas. In small town Texas, man, everybody looked down on you, the black people, the white people, the black people mostly, right? And black people still treat you funny. But, you know, to imagine coming from where you came to doing what you do and having some great accomplishment. But tell us about this. You kind of already mentioned it, the time in which you were born. And I love that about your book because you mentioned some of this stuff, man. What was the social political climate 1991 in which you were born? What was going yeah. on back then? Uh, it's crazy because I've been watching Death Comedy Jam recently, uh, just going back through that. And it reminds me of so much of that time. But you know, 22 days before I was born, Rodney King got beaten. You know, uh, we're coming off the, the heels of the crack epidemic, which devastated our communities. You know, death, uh, homicide rates for black males doubled during that time frame from 84 to, you know, 89, 90. And uh, teen pregnancy. You know, I looked at my my parents and, and I, I, I begged a question in the book. I was like, was this just me? Was this just my family? Why are we plagued with this? But no, it was it was an it was a epidemic across the entire country. Teen pregnancy was at an all time high in 1990, just a year before I was born. And then looking at my my father, who had been uh, who was in and out of jail for most of my childhood, but then ultimately ended up in prison. Um, looking at uh, the systemic issues that were presented that put a target on people on young black men. Honestly, just you know, young black men were were. Um, targeted and um, to see the the war on crime, the war on, war on drugs and how everything shaped out, you know, um, that, it was a lot of that going on um, during the time of, of when I was born and, and during my upbringing. And so, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to see, you know, where we are today, but, you know, the things that shaped everything that was going on during that time, it was a, it was a, it was a very messy time for, for our community. And, you know, if you're in impoverished black communities, then, you know, it was, it was tough. And well, you know, I, I love that part about your, I guess, do you call it autobiography? Do you call it a memoir? Um, I, I usually call it a memoir, but I mean, it's very, it's autobiography. Okay. Yeah, it's an autobiography. What I love about it is that you do so much healing in this book, right? But before we get into the healing, let's talk about the core topic, right? PTSD, right? A lot of people are like, well, isn't that that military thing? But mm -hmm. you coined your own phrase, perseverance yeah. through severe dysfunction. Yeah. Initially, I was like, well, he must be talking about family dysfunction, family dysfunction. But what I loved in your book is that you didn't stop there. You described the dysfunction in the entire world in this country that was going on during the time in which you were born. And I love that. As they would say, context matters. Mm -hmm. Context in 1991 are all these things. But, but yeah. let's PTSD. What are some traumatic or dysfunctions that have led to your personal PTSD? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I... Um, the way I was able to connect it to such a larger topic and a larger discussion was because in, in, in the context of my trying to heal, I had to understand what was going on. And so I recognized that a lot of the trauma that I faced was um, on, put placed on me by those who came before me, 
my my parents, my grandparents, those in my family that were older than me. Um, and, and then in my healing process, I began to learn and understand what their traumas were that, you know, that were passed down to me and then what their parents' traumas were and, and so forth and going on all the way back to, you know, generations before we can even remember. And uh, so some of the things that I, I, I dealt with, I mean, just, you know, it, it is it is so common in our communities, uh, but having one parent, having a, a single mother raise you where you're, and then your dad is in prison or your dad is off loving another family or whatever that is, that, that is, is traumatic just in itself. And we, we normalize that a, a lot of times, but, um, you know, I, I was an angry child. I was an angry child because I was longing for this love from my dad that was never reciprocated. And um, so that was a big piece of it. And, and there are a lot of things that I think have, have were, were traumatic to me that I can't even recall because they happen when, you know, from birth to three, four years old that are, are extremely traumatic. And I think there is some abuse. I think there was uh, some neglect and other things there, but I can't recall those things, but they still play a role in, in our lives, whether we know it or not. But some of the things that I can remember, I mean, you know, I, I was I was 13, 14 years old when one of my uh, childhood best friends got killed. And that was one of the early moments where, you know, you see it on TV, you hear about it, you, you know, all that happens. But then when it hits home that close and, you know, the intimate details of what goes on and everything like that, it's, 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 it is um, it sticks with you forever. You know, every time you close your eyes, every time um, you think of, you hear that name, whether it's the, the exact name of that person or, you know, the different person that's being referenced, um, it comes back. And, and you know, I, I think about that often, but uh, I also think about just being at home in a very stressful environment. Um, going back to the financial situation I talked about when money is such a pressing issue in the house. Uh, anything can trigger you, right? Like we ain't got food on the table. So somebody's screaming and somebody's mad and somebody, and it's just like, hey, any moment, ticking time bomb, tick, 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 boom. And, um, you know, I grew up with a, with a lot of that in the house. I remember, you know, I don't know, in the mornings, mornings were a stressful time, getting ready for school and all that. Um, I just wanted to get out of the house and just go to school, do my work and just, you know, be away because it was, it was moments of peace moments of peace and um yeah i mean it, a lot of a lot of a lot of things and i'm i'm probably in my head right now normalizing some of them because you know i would say it's something that we all deal with but it, i but i i have to check myself on that a lot because um you know even going to the grocery store is traumatic for me you know going to the grocery store pushing a cart around having to fill up a whole nother cart because we were, we were using food stamps and we we're going to shop for the whole month. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. yeah. I was getting ready to tell you is that one of my most exciting stories <laughs> in your book is the story of grocery store. Mm-hmm. I'll give you two traumatic things and I'll let you finish that story, but you know, a few traumatic things, right? One, I think you're around the age of, I think 13 when you purchased your mom a car, right? Yeah. So, and sometimes that can be normalized. People are like, oh, but I remember when I was 12, I actually drove my mom to the hospital 
so that my baby brother could be um, delivered. Wow. Back then, I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I, <laughs> I was practicing driving, but can you imagine a 12-year-old driving a car with, with a, a pregnant woman? woman. <laughs> yeah. I mean, go figure, right? But I like the way you describe this normalized of um, of, of um, trauma. And But if you would, tell us two things. Tell us about what it means to normalize trauma as compared to your trauma versus other people's trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not, it's all relative, right? Mm -hmm. And tell us the grocery store story because I love that story. Yeah. So, so the normalization of trauma, right? For, for instance, if, if you're three years old and you're walking down the street with an ice cream cone and that ice cream cone falls and you, you started crying because at that moment, that is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Well, regardless of how that how that compares to seeing your best friend being killed seeing a, a parent being hauled off to jail whatever it is uh it is internalized it's felt by you as the worst thing that has happened and so your body is going to respond to it as that it's not going to say oh i i'm you know i'm going to logically say that this is less than something else and uh, we we tend to do that a lot of times because that helps us when we are showing compassion for other people, right? I'm hungry, but I was able to eat when there are kids in Africa who have nothing to eat, or you know, I didn't have the meal today, or whatever it may be. So we we do that to to show empathy, to show compassion. But when it is dealing with our personal mental health and our our healing journeys, it is harmful because then we don't take the proper steps to heal ourselves when whatever our level of trauma is no matter where it is on the relative scale uh it, it still affects us and so that that is you know i i tell the story in the introduction about you know you have one kid who lives a perfect life and then one one day that perfect life comes crashing down because the parents get divorced well that is that is very traumatic for that kid on the other hand you have an orphan who doesn't even know their parents but they have a sibling and then that sibling gets killed Right. Those are two traumatic experiences and they're vastly different, but they affect that individual. It could be the same. We don't know. You know, everybody feels what they feel and that is valid no matter what it ha what no matter what it is. And so um, it is great to have that level of of knowing that relativity to to show compassion to others, but recognizing that we have our self-healing and we have our our what we need to do to help ourselves um, going on. But the grocery store story, so uh, I just, and I wrote this story years ago, honestly. I had this story in my Google Drive that I wrote probably in college. And um, I just remember the stress that going to the grocery store was. We would have to call a cab. And in Nashville, that's not a comment. Like, you, you just don't call a cab to go to the grocery store. And back in the mid-90s, uh, get to the grocery store, you know, pile up two, two carts full, high as can be, and then have to deal with, you know, you got WIC, women, infant, and children. You got food stamps, and then you got cash payments. And so it was a matter of, all right, did I put everything in the cart right? Because when we put it on the conveyor belt, WIC has to go first, because that is the most limiting payment structure. And then food stamps have to go second and then the cash items. And so like the anxiety of just sitting there like, oh my God, did I do it right? Mom gonna yell at me that the cashier hates me right now. The people behind us ready to leave. They, 
that is anxiety inducing for a little kid. And then having to sit outside of the grocery store and wait on the cab to come back and pick you up while, you know, it's a small town. You know, you got people that you know, you got friends, you got kids snickering, they getting in their cars and they going straight home. And uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> again, I wrote that story years ago for a reason, but it just stuck with me, just that experience, uh, and which could be so mundane for other people. But, you know, it really, it really sticks with you. Yeah, you know, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I smile because I remember going to the grocery store during that time. And it was a bittersweet time. It was excitement because it's the first of the month, you know, you know, wake up, wake up, you know, as um, bone thugs would say. But at the same time, it was stressful because it was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And and I like that story because I saw the amount of expectation that your mom put on you. But I also like from that moment, the advice she gave you that also balanced and gave you, you know, confidence. Do you mind sharing with us that, that, Absolutely. The advice she gave you. Absolutely. And so, you know, there were times where I would try to do, try to not to go to the grocery store or hide my face behind the cart or hoodie or whatever I was wearing. And she told me was to to not be embarrassed about, you know, where I came from and that if somebody was going to make fun of me for being poor, for not having a car, whatever it may have been, uh, things out of my control, then those weren't people that I wanted to associate myself with anyway. And, and, you know, it was, it was, it was so refreshing because I think, you know, even today, like we have these expectations from social media and everything else in the world. But, you know, when it comes down to it, it's like the real people who love you going to rock with you and the people who aren't, aren't regard, like somebody's going to say something negative about this podcast as dope as your podcast is somebody's going to say something negative about it. And they're going to say something negative, whether you, you, it's the best thing ever, or it's the worst thing ever. And so, you know, you can't control what's out of your control. And that was something that, that she used to just instill in me. And it, and it, it built, it helped to restore the confidence that I, that I, that I have and that I had. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. Just, you know, the many people you want to be associated with anyway. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Now let's, let's step into um, relationships. How do you, um, I guess in summary, because you kind of already mentioned it, um, how do you feel that your relationships with your parents contributed to your PTSD? You kind of mentioned their traumas, your trauma. I mean, do you believe that it contributed to your, you know, and and, and just for the audience sake, and we skipped over this, but we also want to mention that you formally accepted formal clinical PTSD as your experience as well. And feel free, you can share that if you're not. But let's talk about relationships because we want to talk about your parents and then your grandparents. Mm-hmm. How, how do you feel that the relationship with your parents, mom and dad, you know, affected or influenced that PTSD? Yeah, so I think to make the distinction, like many people experience trauma. The trauma sometimes can form into PTSD and sometimes it won't, you know, uh, and, and so for me, I think the, the relationship with my, my parents, uh, and I've noticed it more as of late, um, uh, more than in the past, uh, has definitely affected and added to the, the post-traumatic stress disorder. Because, um, you know, there are, again, going back to normalization, when you're in something, when you're in the environment that harmed you, when you're in the fire, 
you don't necessarily know that it's harmful. You don't know that there is a better way. And so for so long, up until, you know, high school, you know, when I was still living at home, still living in the same communities, although I was going to a school where it was basically paradise, uh, I was in that environment. And so I didn't recognize it for what it was. Being removed from that environment and experiencing, you know, joy for the first time, experiencing peace for the first time, um, then you rec- then you start to see that, oh, the things that I was experiencing were not great. I shouldn't have normalized those things. And then when those things are reintroduced in your new life, in your new peaceful life, your body reacts, right? My heart rate increases. I start to sweat. I can't sleep. I can't stop thinking about, you know, all these different things uh, uh, present. And so um, the the relationship with my parents is, and I don't want to give too much about uh, away from, from the readers, uh, but, you know, when I, and I, I, I'm, I'm open about this. I, I posted on social media one day. I had a I had a triggering event with one of my parents, and it happened in the morning. It was nine o'clock in the morning, uh, but my heart rate, and I, I keep track of my heart rate because I, and that's a good way for me to measure like where I am, how how chill am I, how how you know zen am I, and uh, my heart rate was still nearly double by seven p.m. that night. And I had done yoga. I had, I was literally lying in bed and doing nothing. I wasn't running. I wasn't, you know, from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. that night, my heart rate was doubled. It was still beating as fast as as it was beating. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, when you when you are in that environment, you normalize it. You don't necessarily understand. You, it becomes a defense mechanism. Just keep pushing through that. But when you're removed from that, but then it's reintroduced. That's when you start to feel those effects. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, let's let's talk about one of your awesome relationships, um, your grandfather. Tell us about uh, how this relationship with your grandfather led to your resilience, your ability and skills to preserve, persevere, excuse me, through severe dysfunction. Tell us about grandpa. Man, Pops was, it's uh, my guy. Um, so my grandfather was uh, a hard worker. He, he, was a, he was a truck driver his entire life, drove 18 wheelers, drove family, moved families from home to home all across the country. And, um, you know, my growing up, you know, being at home with my, my mom, my dad was not really there. So, so my, my dad's, and this is my dad's father, uh, my dad's parents stepped up and played a huge role. And so, you know, most weekends, most, most, any free time that I had, I wanted to be with them. I wasn't trying to play around with the kids in the neighborhood. I didn't really care for that. I wanted to be with my grandparents. And, uh, so I would, I would spend a lot of time with them. And, Grandpa, when he was in town, when he wasn't driving his truck in, in a different city, different state, I was his shadow. I was on his hip everywhere he went. He's old school. He was he was old school. He he uh <laughs> it's just funny. I mean, we'd drive to anywhere he went, I was there. We'd go to the little corner store or whatever, and it'd be a dude sitting there asking for change or something. He just leaned over to me. You see that boy right there? I used to kick his ass up and down the hallway. <laughs> like, and I'm just like, oh man, it's crazy. But it was just, that was how real he was. He was just, he was just real. And, uh, but, uh, 
but uh, you know he he uh, he he knew what to. I think he he knew that he had his experiences shaped the lessons that he taught me. And I and I and I say this: he was he was the first he was the first and only person to ever tell me these three things. And he he always said he said um, you're going to go to college, you're going to get married, and you're going to buy a house. Those are three things he would always tell me. You're going to go to college, you're going to get married, you're going to buy a house. And again, like if you think back, like my parents didn't graduate from high school. None of my family members other than, you know, extended aunt and uncle were married. It wasn't a thing. And my grandmother had bought a house. He, he didn't purchase that house with it. And so like he saw these things that he wished he could have changed in his life. And he was, sent, he was telling me that you're going to do these three things, right? And just as a young kid hearing that, that can change the course of your life, right? It, that's the difference. It's so different than the story of you want to end up dead or in jail, right? Because we tell our kids that so often. And so him telling me those three things, you know, I, I did all of those things. You got, I got, I graduated from college. I got married. I bought a house. And, um, you know, uh, he, he eventually gave me the opportunity to work with him one summer on the, uh, maybe two summers on the truck. And I traveled the, the country with him. We went all the way up to New York, went all the way over to Cali and, and had a bunch of stops in between. And that was one of the best experiences of my entire life. Like to see him in action, to see, you know, him carrying refrigerators on his back. And, and you know, it was just like, it, it was, I can, I can still feel it. I can still experience it. He was a chain smoker. I could smell the smoke from the Territons with my head hanging out the window, all of that. Like, uh, you know, but he always made sure that I knew the mistakes that he made and that he didn't want me to follow in those footsteps. Awesome, awesome. Thanks. You know, um, I, I love the story of you and your grandfather. One of my favorite parts is uh, I think when he tells, I think he complimented you on your ability to move and lift heavy things, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, I won't give it away, but I loved it, right? Because I could tell he was proud and you were proud too. I can only imagine, you know, oh, your, yeah. is, your chest sticking out, you know? Oh, yeah. At that moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so let's 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 talk about the worst chapter, right? And I know initially when I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm curious about what it is. And I skimmed it and I went back over it. But let's talk about the worst chapter of your life. What dysfunctions do you believe led to the worst chapters of your life? And I'm phrasing it there because I, there's a lot, but I'm going to let you just speak on which ones that you feel yeah. really led to the worst chapter of your life. Yeah. So, so for, for those who haven't read the book, I have a chapter in the book entitled worst chapter of my life and that is where the book actually stems from um in my phone i i during during everything that was going on in that chapter i was journaling uh, because uh, my grandmother was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in late 2018 right before christmas around this time and um, she had a brain surgery to remove one of the three tumors and, you know, was recovering from that surgery. And then January 1st, 2019, I wake up to a call from my dad saying that something wasn't right. And 
I didn't know what was going on, but I, you know, it was, it was, it was my grandma. So I rushed over there and um, I saw her laid out in her bed, plank, like just like a plank stiff as can be. And I, and I thought she was dead and um, eventually found out that that wasn't the case. Uh, she had, she, she was, she was very, very ill. Uh, her blood pre- or her blood sugar had dropped down to 44. If there are any diabetics on, on the call, you know that that ain't good. You know, it's close to, to a coma and, and if not death. And so um, I the my my escape was to journal through that. And so much happened in the course of that day, in the course of that week, in the course of that month that the title of my journal went from worst day of my life to worst month of my life to worst year of my life. And then ultimately in the book is the worst chapter of my life. But, um, you know, the, the, the traumas that were, were presented, I mean, everything from suicide attempts to, um, you know, aggravated assaults with deadly weapons, guns drawn on family members, um, you know, financial abuse of, of, of the sick, you had just all kind of deception, all kind of just bad characters at play. Um, but I think a lot of that stems from, you know, the, the traumas that they faced. And then also the, uh, I don't know, the, the being the, the, the issues that we face as, as, in our communities of, you know, why was there financial abuse? Because somebody didn't have an opportunity to make money for themselves and have financial freedom. And so they felt that that was their opportunity. And, and why was there guns being drawn? Well, you know, this person can't communicate their feelings or express themselves in a manner that is, you know, what normal adults would, would normally do. And so they turn to violence or they turn to this weapon that's going to solve things for them quicker. And so, you know, all, all of that was just like this big old powder keg, you know, it's just, you know, lit up and it blew up. And um, it was that period of my life where I finally realized that my mental health had to be a priority for me or else I was, I was not productive. I was not helpful, beneficial in any other aspect of my life. Because I was giving so much in trying to help keep all of this together, I was that I was neglecting myself, and it ultimately showed. And if you read the introduction, it shows right there. And um, so, you know, there were so many things at play um, that it's hard to, you know, just that's the trauma. It was, it was, it was life at that moment. Life was just traumatic. Life was chaotic. And, uh, it, you know, I, I took my journal entries after, you know, maybe a span of six months and transcribed them to my computer. And it was 60 pages of just six months of my life, single space. So you, you double that and that's a whole book by itself. Right. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I used that because it was helpful for me because at the time I wasn't able to communicate everything that I was going through, everything that I was feeling, but I could write it out for myself in the ways that I was talking to myself and saying those things. So one day might be 
a whole, you know, day's worth of step-by-step, this is what happened. Other days it might be, fuck this period. And that was the whole day that I wrote about. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough time, but I think going through that helps me realize just the importance of my mental health. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. You know, let's shift the gear to finding balance, right? Because, you know, when people hear these stories, you know, these um, stories that are your stories, but sometimes they may not relate, right? Because they didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what percentage of people have experienced, you know, based on research and numbers that are out there, have experienced trauma? What, what do the numbers say? So um, you got different studies out there, but some some agree about 70% of people experience trauma at some point in their lives. And I, and I argue that it's higher than that because, again, that normalization piece that we don't always you know, we go to the doctor and we fill out these questionnaires or we are asked in an interview, we might not say yes, or we might not even remember it because it was so traumatic that our brains block it out, right? So 70% is what, what the studies show, but, you know, I feel that if you're living life, life is hard. <laughs> I think I think we all have it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I tell you what I've learned here tonight as I talk with you is that the way you describe trauma, I understand it this way now it's not about what the trauma did to other people it's what it did to you Mm -hmm. right it's not about how much it would hurt someone else it's did it hurt you question is if it did hurt they call that trauma and if it hurt there needs to be some healing yes parents getting divorced may not be a big deal for some people you know single mom single kid type kids However, it hurt the person who went through that experience. Mm-hmm. If it hurt, then we need to do some healing. Mm-hmm. So tell me this, um, you know, uh, what do you think, you know, some listeners out there can do to I better identify or understand their personal trauma stories? You know, um, and I'm going to pause there for a second before I sh- shuffle up a little bit, but if a person's sitting out there and they're listening or listen to the podcast after and they, you know, do some soul search, they're like, wait a minute, there is something that kind of hurt me mm-hmm. that I never dealt with. What's your advice or suggestion to those people to better understand those trauma stories and deal with them? Yeah. And I, I want to, I want to point out something as well. Um, overhearing a story or watching it on the news can be traumatic, right? You might not have anybody in your family that's been murdered at gunpoint with, with a gun. But if you hear about my story and it, it, it triggers something in your body, then that can be a traumatic experience for you. So it's not necessarily something that has directly happened to you. But um, I, when, when you know, I've had friends tell me that they haven't read the book yet because they're afraid of what it's going to bring out of themselves. You know, when they read my stories that may parallel to you know, mine or may, you know, be a little bit different. They, they're afraid of what is going to come out when they read that. Um, but I think that that is, that is a part, that is, that is a, a early step of the healing process. You have to experience that. You have to acknowledge that for what it is. You know, there are so many things that I didn't even remember until I started writing that happened. And I was like, oh yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't feel good in that moment. Um, 
let me start thinking about that. Let me start thinking about how that affected relationships and as they as my life went on, or how they how that affected how I responded to different things. Um, so I think taking inventory first and foremost, you know, really gathering what have I experienced, how has that played out in my life, and what has, how has that shaped me in my life is one of the first steps. And in doing so, I think when you're dealing with the thing that are, that is in between your two ears, you know, your brain, you're the only person that knows whether you're being real or being false, right? You can tell, so I can sit here and tell you that I'm good. I ain't traumatized. I'm da, 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 all day long, but then go and cry and then go and, and just be, you know, traumatized. And uh, so when you're dealing with yourself and taking inventory for yourself, be real because you're, you're going to hurt yourself if you're not being real with yourself. So yes, it hurt me. No matter what society says, whether it's supposed to be okay, you know, put some dirt on it, rub, rub it off, whatever. Um, how did it make you feel? You know, take inventory. How did it make you feel despite what society says? And then start to think about ways to heal. And, and um, for me, I, I've, I've found so many different ways of, of, of healing. And I think that, you know, it takes experimenting, right? Cause, cause what works for me may not work for you. And, um, and I did, I did a lot of different things, right? I didn't sleep for an entire month. And I, so I was like, how do I first get sleep? Because this is affecting everything else. So I started experimenting. Can I, can, will this drug work? Will this drug work? Self-prescribing different things. None of those worked. Okay. Let me go to the doctor, see if the doctor can give me something that will work. That didn't work. Okay, well, let me go for a run. Oh, I like that. That made me feel better. Let me do yoga. Let me go get acupuncture. Let me talk to a therapist, right? That's something that in our community, I think, at least in my family, like, you're, you're crazy if you go talk to a therapist. I talk to a therapist when I'm happy. I talk to a therapist when I'm sad. You know, it, it, it is healthy to just get your feeling. Like even this podcast and me talking through my experience is, is healing. And so, you know, talking to a therapist, a counselor, a life coach, whatever you want to put on it to make you break that stigma and get the healing, do the healing, do the work uh, is, is, is so vital. You know, it may, it may require multiple different things. It may require experimenting with different, different therapists even, uh, but different other forms of therapy, yoga, uh, meditation, um, you know, just working out, um, but, but being mindful throughout it all, because you could be running from one problem right into another. You know, if, if, you're, you're, if your coping mechanism is, I'm going to go to the gym because that helps me Forget about all this other stuff. But then, now you're in the gym four hours a day, every single day, and you're this big muscle bag, or you're as skinny as can be. That's not. It's not healing. You know, you're just you're masking it with something else. So being real with yourself, um, but talking through it, figuring out what healthy ways that work for you. Well, thank you for sharing that part of your story about how your friends experience your book because. Um, I agree with you. You said social media can be triggering. There's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that we've seen on social media that has triggered us. In addition, when I started going through your book, it did trigger me. Mm -hmm. It took me back to that place, right? 
and I started remembering my stories, like, you know, my mother, you know, you know, going into labor and I'm driving her to the hospital and, you know, it made me sad and stuff, but I got through it. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I put the book down and then I just I took a few breaths. And at first I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. But then when I picked it up, I was better. And so much so that I began to talk with a good friend about the book and the experiences. And as we talked through them, you know, I'd hoped that he would read it with me, but then he kind of got busy. So I started telling him like, oh, he said this and said this, and I experienced this, I experienced this. Wow. All of a sudden, my buddy begins to have an aha moment. So the question I have for you, based on the aha moment, is he went back to Tracy Chapman, fast car. And he says, you know what? I had an aha moment that I'm healing from, you know, an old marriage. Mm-hmm. Because I never realized that I was in a situation where my wife was like Tracy Chapman in that song, Fast Car, and I was her fast car, Mm. right? So my question for you, as we get close to wrapping up and people who have questions do get your questions ready because we're having a good time, So, but we're okay with time. If you were to add a soundtrack to your book, what songs, give me three, would be on that soundtrack that go along with your book? Hmm. I'd have to add a a song by Mary J. Blige and title of the song. I mean, the reason I choose Mary J. Blige, Mary J. Blige was blared in our house growing up. My mom loved Mary J. Blige. My mom kind of looks like Mary J. Blige. Uh, (laughs) And um, maybe No More Pain. No More Pain. Uh, I can't sing, so forgive me but uh <laughs> but you do have bars though i mean do you, you want to give us a, a few of your bars i mean you want oh. a little bit you know i picked up on that Ooh, you got anything you want to share with us you know it's crazy uh, hmm. i have a song that i haven't even shared with 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 too many people it's called Ooh. it's called suicide and it's 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 not as bleak as uh, well it is bleak but it's not me committing suicide. It was during during some of that chaotic time, and I'm asking in the hook uh, if I shoot a person in their head, will they call it suicide? Because I was I was so deranged to where I wanted to kill somebody. That is that that is in in the book that is near and dear to me, and so. Uh, I say, this is the hook. Um, hold on, I'm playing it. Just how the fuck I'm going to trust you? You treat me like I'm dirt. Asking you for the love me, you didn't any hurt. Looking up for the answers. They don't seem to be falling. Devil pulling me down. He the only one calling. Angels in the sky. Swear to God, I miss them. Wish I could just hug them, squeeze them and kiss them. Holding back tears. I don't really want to cry. If I shoot them in the head, will they call it suicide? Down 911, it's been a robbery, but I can never get back the shit that they took from me. Take my heart on my chest and watch this shit freeze. Who the fuck I'm supposed to trust in these cold streets? I'm drowning in the oceans where my pain run deep. I've been up for about a month because I can't get no sleep. People switching sides that used to be on the team. I'm living the nightmare. It's like my worst dream. Nobody can hurt me without my permission. I hear the bullshit, but that don't mean I'm listening. They smile in your face like they got something different. Back in the mind, they be thinking something different. 
Promise I'm going to rectify the situation. Take control, plan it out, and then be patient. Take so long, they be like, why you wait? They're to a temple like a freshman fade, eh? So, <laughs> oh, it's a dark-ass song, right? <laughs> man, but you got skills, man. And, you know, I love how, thank you for blessing us with that. I love how you channel your pain, your energy, your emotions, your feelings through your gifts, man. But well, the gifts I take away, strong writer, you know, journaling, right? Getting that out there. But let's get ready for a question, man. Thank you for sharing that. Let's get ready for some. Tell us about what you do now, because we didn't get a chance to talk about Rose Creek, right? The rose mm-hmm. that grew through the concrete. Tell us about what you do there. And then, I mean, we're going to do a quick uh, wrap up and I'm going to let you choose. Tell us about your speaking engagements and, you know, the type of, you know, organizations you work with and why do they hire you? And, I, you know, I want to hear about your next book because I know you're going to be publishing <laughs> other stuff. And I know you got a PhD in your future somewhere, but I just want to do round robin. Feel free to speak on any of those topics. And anybody in the audience who got questions, feel free to speak up, you know, but go ahead, Reggie. Tell us about that. You know, yeah. tell us about Rose Creek. Tell us about what's next. Yeah. So Rose Creek, I started Rose Creek in 2018 uh, after working in. Um, I worked for Big Four Accounting, and then I worked in wealth management at a boutique uh, wealth management firm here in Nashville. Decided that I wasn't giving, I wasn't, I wasn't fulfilled by the work that I was doing. I was working with you know millionaire families who had this legacy money, who had this generational money, old white money, old white people, and that just wasn't fulfilling me every day. And so I decided that I wanted to start Rose Creek in order to help people who. Uh, had stories like mine, the roses coming out of the crack in the concrete. And um, that may be first generation to do whatever they're doing, that may be just, you know, non-traditional. And so I uh, started working with a lot of professional athletes initially, um, that shifted to more business owners, business-minded folks, doctors, um, lawyers, and, and, different, and different people in tech field, you know, different things like that. And, uh, you know, everything from investment management, where, you know, how how do I balance this portfolio? How do I build a portfolio to planning, um, you know, big life events, having a family? How do I, you know, plan for my estate and everything else like that? So that is uh, the day job um, that that I do currently. And then um, as far as, so when the book launched, it opened up this platform to speak to tell my story and um i think that my story is so um there's so many you know it's multifaceted and so there's this wide spectrum of topics that i can talk about whether it's mental health whether it's social justice whether it's just persevering through the working world or school or whatever it is so i get invited to talk with schools, to talk with the faculty staff on how to look at and talk to their non-traditional students or their students that may be going through different things. Uh, Talking to the students on, hey, I was in your seat at one point and don't let the world limit you on whatever they're saying that you can do. Um, Then being brought into different corporations to talk about uh, how do we really embrace this diversity, equity, inclusion initiative, or how do we attract, retain, main, and, and, uh, our, our, our diverse um, candidates that we try to hire? 
Uh, how do I just be a better person? <laughs> you know, uh, so I talk, uh, and then then you know, I'm, I'm, my day job is in finance, and so I talk a lot about finance, financial empowerment, financial literacy. Um, is is a huge topic for me, and so any of that, um, you know, mental health, social justice, finance, and that is that is my my wheelhouse right there. And so if there's anybody out there that um, who are involved in organizations that could benefit from that. I'm all for it. That is, that is what I do. I give back um, because my experiences has, has, has allowed me to do that. And so, uh, yeah. So thank you. And we just shared in the chat to the audience, um, the links to your website. Um, so you can find our guest tonight at reggied4.com. In addition to Rose Crete, C-R-E-T-E.com. I think I got that correct. And um, for his wealth management services. So let's go to the audience. Thank you guys for being patient. You know, we started having fun and talking a little bit, but we're good because we got Afro Sheen. She going to groove us out. You know, I don't know what she got for us tonight. She always keep us set nice and um, surprised for us for the nine o'clock hour. But let's see uh, who we got in the audience. You know, sometimes the audience gets a little shy, but let's see who we got out there. Who we got in the audience? Um, Tamika, we got any questions from the audience? How about you, Katie? I know you always got a question. I was say I Margaret. I have a question. <laughs> um, I'm curious, you started talking, Reggie, about um, your conversations that you had with schools and with teachers. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that because I'm curious as to how it is that we can make certain that young men, and I'm realizing that you're 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 a young man too, right? Um, but how it is that we can um, really reach out to young men in particular that are high school age and middle school age that might be experiencing some of the very things that you experienced, some of the things that Calvin mentioned also, but how can we do that in a way in a safe space because kids spend so much time at school? You know, what kind of suggestions do you give to school personnel for that? Yeah, I think one of the the challenges for, for teachers now is, is that there are m many, uh, there are many more rules about around, uh, you know, being one on one with a with a kid. And so like to build that deep personal relationship with a kid that is that is almost frowned upon now. And so uh, but I think, you know, when I look back at my experience and some of the teachers that have had the most impact on my life, they did things that were that I saw as as thoughtful. You know, um, I think I don't I don't see any kid as a bad kid. I think the behavior that is is portrayed is, that is presented by a kid is a um, a matter of them not having the vocabulary to talk about what is going on in their lives. And so when you notice that, when you see that in the kid, um, find a way to to show some thoughtfulness. You know, it may they, it might be a a musician that you have no idea what, they, but you find a, a poster or something. I, I, I was just walking through this mall one day and I found, I found this and I wanted to give it to you. You know, I heard you singing a song one day or, you know, whatever it may be, but finding something that is, is thoughtful um, to, to connect with that kid. And then if it requires, you know, a, a, another adult or another student to su to supervise whatever their relationship is do that have those bring them bring you know you're not in trouble but let's have lunch together it's going to be us for we're just going to have lunch we're just going to talk and I know that there is a lot of you have to keep the boundaries right you're an adult you're a teacher and everything they're a student but 
you have a life that you've lived and you can relate to a lot of experiences that they don't always see. So when you open up and say that, you know, like, like for instance, like, like Calvin in, in my story about the grocery store, right? If, if, if he would have been like, man, I know you probably went to the grocery store last night. It's the first, it's the second of the month and yeah, you look pissed today. Well, let me tell you, I hated that stuff too. You know, um, that, that is a way to start building that. And, and then you become, you become a, a you know, trusted confidant and, and to build the trust that that's what you're trying to do. Because so often kids from communities like ours, um, you know, that's one of the hardest things when you, when you, you know, you, you, you're neglected, you're rejected, you're abandoned by whomever it may be. Um, you, you just want somebody that's going to always be there. And so if you can prove that you can always be there, that's huge. That's, thank you so much for that. And then thank you for your words of wisdom to us today. Quick follow-up question to that, because as you mentioned, so often it's difficult for teachers and for adults to have those conversations and to have those sort of intimate relationships with kids. How can we possibly begin building empathy in children so that they can really feel safe in talking about those things with each other? Um, you know, so that they can really know that they're not in it alone. Because I can think back to, you know, when I was in seventh grade and not knowing that a lot of kids were going through stuff and then finding out about it as an adult and thinking, gosh, I wish I would have known as an 11 year old or as a yes. 10 year old, how to, how to talk to my friends. So how, how would you suggest we do that? I, I think I'm having that experience right now where now that I've written this book, I'm, you know, some of my classmates who've read it, some of the people who've known me growing up, they're like, I had no idea. And dang, I wish we would have been able to talk about that. I wish we could have, you know, and um, that's, a, that's a tough question because I think, you know, one, I, I, this generation of kids coming up now, like my, I have a younger brother who's 15 years younger than me. I have a younger sister who's 10 years younger than me. Their communication style is so different, right? My brother doesn't even text me anymore because that's too much work now. So he just voice, he just, he just presses the button, holds and, and speaks to me. So, um, <laughs> um, but I think almost like a phone call is what you're saying. Yeah, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it may be the reverse. We're coming back to phones, and, and so yeah, we'll see that. But um, without outing, because because you don't want to out a kid, right? And 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 label a kid or anything like that. Um, <laughs> I just saw that uh, in the chat. But uh, without outing a kid, I think that there is. Um, I don't know. I think ways to ask, ask thought-provoking questions and then have, have students talk about them. So I went through yoga teacher training. I'm a yoga instructor and things like that. And one of the most impactful parts of, of the teacher training was, hey, I want you to sit down and I want you to answer this question, journal it by yourself. And then the catch was always, all right, now three of y'all group, get grouped together and I want you to start sharing that. And you don't have to share it if you don't want. You, you can only say the first line. You don't have to say anything. But we here for five minutes and you're just going to be sitting there in a circle quiet and just see what comes out of that. Right. It, 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 you'll be surprised what comes out of, you know, telling, telling folks that, hey, this is this is what the assignment is for right now. So we, we got a question from Margaret and Margaret, you can unmute yourself. I'm going to try to read your questions if you want to explain it. But Margaret um, has a question. She says, I'm curious at how you find your niche spot in 
this school and city um, life when in Nashville, while it's touted country music town, maybe you didn't embrace the music path. So Margaret, I'm kind of uh, doing my best to get that question, but feel free to unmute yourself if you want to kind of add to that. I think she, she's she's curious, maybe you sh should have been a country music uh, star. I don't know. What's... I have a little bit more that was just okay. text to me. Um, Mainly, she's just wondering how music was not part of his life or influenced him, considering, I guess, he's in Nashville, which is known for country oh, music. Okay. Well, that's a good question. But but I, I will say uh, music has definitely be, been a huge part of my life. And I, and I even, you know, I brought up Mary J. Blige earlier, but uh, I say in the book how uh, Mary J. Blige was the soundtrack to my mom's pain. My mom wasn't able to communicate the things that she was going to going through, but Mary J. Blige did. And I heard that through the music. And although it wasn't country, it, you know, far from it, uh, I think that's a misconception. If you just if you're not in Nashville, you think everything is country. Right. And uh, but and if you come here and you try to go out, you're going to find very few spots for us. But um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a black man from inner city of, 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 a, of a city. And so I, I grew up on rap. I grew up on hip hop. Um, I, I list I've heard I like some country songs. I don't choose to listen to them, but I think they have good messaging in them. Um, but, yeah, music is, is, is a huge part of my life. If you look at the acknowledgments in my book, I have a dedication to um, musicians, like a huge dedication to different musicians that have um, played a huge role in my life. Yeah, that Kendrick Lamar, some Tupac, some mm -hmm. definitely Mary J. Blige. Man, this has been awesome. Reggie D. Ford, brother. Can, but wait, before, because I, I hear I hear a wrap up. Before, before you wrap up, my wife is on the call. Katie uh -oh. Ford. Katie Ford. Dr. Katie Ford. Um, she's been a huge part of my growth. Um, before I met Katie, I was, I, I wouldn't have had two seconds to talk to you. I wouldn't have wanted to say anything to you. I was, I was a mute basically. And, uh, she has definitely helped me, um, find myself, find my voice, um, and, and aided in my healing process. But today she, she just jumped off. She's scared to hear all this <laughs> <laughs> but uh today she oh there she is there she goes um, she turned her camera on yeah that's what it was okay uh she um she passed boards so she's a board certified pediatrician as of today so congratulations give it up for my babe great job katie yeah so i enjoyed reading the book and hearing about katie in the book she didn't have a lot to time but I, I was laughing at that time where you know, the football players outside ran, I think was where you guys, Katie mm -hmm. just kind of rolled up. And what'd you say? She shot her shot. Is that what happened, Katie? She shot her shot. <laughs> it's pretty accurate. I tell them he's put up with my ignorant opinions for a while now, but it worked out well for me. Awesome. Well, Katie, thank you for being here. And definitely, I can tell that you are definitely close to the man because you can always tell. So thank you very much. So um, what was this? Um, before we go, anything else, um, Reggie, before we um, um, wrap up? I would say, uh, shoot, I always forget to say, follow me on social media, Reggie D. Ford, Instagram, social, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and um, subscribe to, uh, if you go to ReggieD4.com, subscribe to the newsletter and building that out and you'll get, um, there's, there's some things dropping soon. So you might get an announcement here pretty soon. 
Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for discussion with the audience.